This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in Science Fiction, where devotees of science and speculative and fantasy fiction meet the authors of their favorite books, or their soon-to-be-favorite books after they've listened to them here. I'm Rob Wolf, and this is the No Human Above, No Human Below edition. In today's episode, I'm excited to welcome back Cadwell Turnbull, who came on the show almost two years ago to talk about his debut novel, The Lesson, which is about an alien invasion and colonization of Earth centered around Turnbull's native U.S. Virgin Islands. Through Cadwell Turnbull's deft storytelling and complex characters, The Lesson grapples with issues like immigration and colonization, and neither the aliens nor the humans come off as all good or all bad. Cadwell is back now, two years later, to talk about his second book, No Gods, No Monsters, which, rather than aliens from another planet, features monsters who live among us as our friends, neighbors, and even relatives. And once again, we have complex characters whose experiences touch on difficult but important issues like police violence, othering, and even fake news. Cadwell is with me now from his home in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm so happy to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to talk to you. As we record now, it's still a few weeks before No Gods, No Monsters hits stores, but it will be out by the time this episode drops. So either way, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I was thinking about questions to ask and mulling over how your first book featured aliens, and now your second book features monsters. And it occurred to me that if a story has aliens, we think of it as science fiction. And if it has monsters, we're more likely to call it horror or fantasy. But as I was thinking about both your books, I started wondering what the difference between aliens and monsters really is and wondered what you think. Are they really that different from each other in terms of the work it takes to create them and the roles they play in stories. So I have two answers to that. I do think they're different, you know, and they do inhabit different genre spaces. But I very much consider these two books sister books. 
So one is dealing with a threat from without, and one is dealing with a threat from within, and they both have similar thematic concerns. And so I feel like if we're talking about aliens and monsters and we're trying to make um, relationships between them, I think they're, they're both versions of human fears manifested through these speculative elements. So aliens are like, what outside threats exist that will harm us? And monsters are what secret dark things hide in our closets that will come out and grab us. So I treat them kind of like similar things. That makes sense. I was thinking how they both are an other. Mm -hmm. So even if the monsters represent something within us, we want to separate ourselves from it and want to pretend that it's coming from the outside. Right, right. I feel like with aliens, you can easily imagine those things as separate. But with monsters, they're kind of, and this happens a lot in the book, the existence of them causes us to question who we are and what we are and what reality is in relation to ourselves. The inciting incident of No Gods, No Monsters is the police killing of a black man named Lincoln. There's police cam footage of the killing, but there are two versions of the footage. There's an edited version, and then there's the unedited version. Can you explain how the two versions differ and what they mean to the story? So the edited version is basically... And this is not a huge spoiler. This is part of the description. Lena discovers that her brother is a werewolf. And so the edited version is just the police officer shooting what he believes to be just a big dog or some kind of wild animal. And in the unedited version, there's an ending where you see that this animal turns back into a human being. And it turns out that it is a, a black man. And depending on which version of the video you watch, you come away with different interpretations of what happened. And I think that part of the reason that I did that, or one of the things I was trying to explore with that is how much more context will inform what you're looking at. So with that edited version, it's pretty easy to make a certain type of interpretation. And then with the unedited version, you make a different type of interpretation that has a ton more larger implications. And one of the things that I feel when I watch police footage of someone being shot is this desire to want to know more. And I get pretty frustrated when those conversations get really limited to what's in the frame. And so this is kind of me playing with the idea of what if you expand the frame, what do you see? I was thinking how people speak about video, at least in these situations that we have seen too, too, too often of police killing people, particularly black and brown men and women, that at least we are seeing a truth that for too long has been hidden. Mm -hmm. But in your book, video really isn't the truth teller because it's the edited version that becomes the dominant story and that is not the complete story. So in fact, people aren't getting the, the truth. It, the video hides rather than reveals the truth. Right. So yeah, I think it's like a two-edged sword, right? It's one of those things where a video does reveal something that is very true, and it reveals something that is has long been hidden from a lot of people. But I think what videos also do is it causes us to kind of, and, and this, is, this is not something that I think we're consciously doing, we limit the conversation to what's in the video. And I think oftentimes I'm frustrated. I think it's a mistake to do that because it kind of distracts us from the systems at play that cause it. I feel like we're, we're typically, when we watch videos, we're asking the question of like, well, who's to blame? 
And it feels to me like the larger implication of looking at a video is, well, what causes these things to happen and how can we, as a collective, change our system so that these things don't happen? It's an example of the things that happen within our system is the way I would interpret it. And while I think it's important to have accountability, I think accountability is a larger question than who is being punished. And I guess videos are reductive, very reductive to the victim as well, because then they become mm-hmm. this sliver of, of video in this the most tragic, horrible moment of their lives and not the rich, full person that they were for every minute and years and years outside of that little video clip. Right. They're, exactly. They're like completely divorced from all of their complexity and all of the nuance of their lives. There are an image on a screen. And even when we're talking about those people, those victims, after the fact, we use other images, other bites of them to kind of be stand-ins for who they are. And we we don't look deep enough at, at all of the ways that they exist within the world. And so partly this book was trying to do some of that. Another, I mean, there's so many fascinating points, but just on this subject of the truth that a video tells, there's at some point one of your characters sees a writer being interviewed about the book he wrote about the incident and the moment when the monsters are thought to have appeared when those who remember the unedited version of the video believe that there are in fact monsters in the world and that moment's called the fracture if i if i have the if i have all the points of the story correct that's right and so this guy wrote a book called the fracture effect and one point he makes in his interview that one of your characters is seeing, he notes that even some people who saw the original unedited version of the video doubt their own memories after the videos are altered. Even they don't trust what they saw anymore because the video has been altered. Yeah, I I have this feeling, you know, often there's things that I see with my own eyes and because it's so strange to me or it's unusual, I've never seen it before, I will immediately start questioning whether or not my eyes or my senses were mistaken. And it seems to me that this would happen with something so big. You know, you have monsters that no one thought to exist, exist. And there's video footage of that. But then that video footage disappears. It seems to me that not only would people begin to doubt themselves, but they would also want to pretend that they live in a world where that unedited footage ever existed. You know, they, want, they would want to erase it themselves. And so it's a complicated question. It's partly they start not believing themselves and then they also don't want to believe themselves. Yeah, because it's scary to have your your sense of how the world is structured pulled out from under you. Mm-hmm. And we see this with the pandemic and stuff too. And with global warming, you know, we were just talking about this before the before we went on. Those things are inconvenient. And so people tend to sand away the edges they don't want to see. Right. Well, I wondered, too, if very particularly because of the material in the book, a police killing of a black man, it's also this issue of, of white supremacy and and how school boards are banning any talk of the history of slavery or whatever, or even mm-hmm. critical race theory, whatever, whatever their fantasy is, whatever their issue is. But it's a little like that, too. It's like, I don't feel comfortable with this. I don't want there to be discussion about it. And therefore, we can tell ourselves the world is this way and not this other way that the facts point to. That's right. Yeah, it seems to me like everywhere I look, I see us doing that. You know, it's a very human quality to kind of look at reality, be dissatisfied with what we're looking at, and to tell ourselves, 
to some degree, comfortable fictions that help us, you know, adjust in the world. Some of that, I think, is kind of healthy. There's so much happening that sometimes we have to put on blinders so that we're not like sinking into a pit of depression every day. But we also see how that works to maintain ignorance, to prevent change. Those things are also the results of us blinding ourselves. I want to talk a little bit more about just the idea of fracture. So as we just noted, the appearance of monsters, or at least the awareness among some people of monsters' existence, if they saw the unedited video and they still believe it, it marks the beginning of something called the fracture. And that word does not suggest a moment of revelation, but really of something breaking apart. So I wonder, in your mind, what is it that is fractured? Is it is it simply the lie people have told themselves that monsters don't exist? Or is it the ability for people to agree on a single truth as if they ever could, but this sense that there was some kind of agreement on what reality is? Or is, is reality just kind of busted wide open now? I think it's all of those. So it it is, I think most importantly, this idea of truth, this kind of I know that we always have disagreements about what reality looks like, but this feels like very core and fundamental. And the fracture is the fact that human beings have kind of formed camps on either side of this reality. And so something that is big and quite basic, whether or not these creatures exist, is now a thing that has been split in two. And so you have people that believe it to be true. And then you have people that don't believe it to be true. And then you have the agnostics in the middle. And because it's such a big part of what I'm presenting to be the future of the world, ignoring it has its costs, paying attention to it has its costs, and standing in the middle has its costs. So we're doomed, basically. <laughs> I don't know if I, I don't know if I think we're doomed. There's, there's still things I'm deciding about the series, but it, it is something that will cause a lot of strife in the future. Throwing another ingredient into this story, as you are want to do, you've got lots of point of view characters, and then you have this sense of what is true, what isn't true, do monsters exist, don't they exist? I mean, the reader is clued into the fact that they do exist, because we are privy to some of the monster's point of views, but you have one of the characters speaks to the reader directly in the first person I voice. And that person is showing us things that if I understand correctly, and this this might be a bit of a spoiler for people because it's something you sort of realize later in the book, but this person is traveling and seeing things on alternate timelines. So when he is narrating things, he may not be narrating something from the same timeline you were just in. And so the story becomes a bit of a prism, I I think, where we're looking at it from different angles, a little bit from this world, a little bit from that one. It's not so discontinuous that we lose the thread, but it sort of makes even the reader wonder what the truth is, I guess. And maybe that's the point. Right. You explaining it like that makes me realize just how crazy oh, no, no. <laughs> the plot is. It's 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 kind of wild that both of those things are happening in the same book. But yes, that is that is part of the book. And it's it's very intentional. And I have plans with how that relates to. So we've been talking about monsters within within this world. But within the world, there are also gods. And that part of the story is related to these kind of in the story that narrator calls it the fractal sea, the the many different worlds that inhabit the story or the you know that the story takes place across. And um 
that stuff is like God level stuff, but that that's playing out more slowly. Maybe we could just jump to the title then, No Gods, No Monsters. That's in the book, a chant that those who are marching in support of monsters use that chant. Uh, And as you explain in the book, it harkens back to an old time anarchist slogan, No Gods, No Masters. So I wonder if you could maybe talk about the meaning of the original slogan and how it translates into No Gods, No Monsters. Right. So the original slogan... And I guess there's a few ways to talk about it. So the original slogan is no gods, no masters. And it's the idea there is anti-hierarchy. There shouldn't be people above. Everyone should be equal. And this isn't just about what people should be afforded in life, the, the things that they need, but also the ability to make decisions, autonomy, agency, that decisions about how a world works should be in the hands of the people is the, is the way that I define it. No gods, no monsters Within the book, it's this idea that there's no people above, so no hierarchy, but there's also no people below. It's also within that critique of power, there's also a critique of discrimination. And it's imagining that this group that's in the middle, the people, are more fractured than we think. And it's a rallying cry to connect all of these different kinds of people. But it also sounds like a denial of the existence of monsters, but in fact, that's not what is is intended because the people shouting it are in fact talking about accepting them. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is what, you know one of those things where within the monster community, they do use the word monsters to talk about themselves. So that happens. No gods, no monsters is this idea that all peoples are within the human people, if that makes sense. So werewolves are also people too is the idea right which in fact all the monsters and i think all the gods the focus isn't on them as much in this the first book in your series but i think they are all people right who manifest and shape shift into into these other forms yes for the most part yes (laughs) (laughs) for the most part of course there's got to be an asterisk a footnote right i thought it was kind of funny that here monsters, whether they exist or not, it becomes the most important topic of the day. And yet one of your characters, Harry, says it's considered rude in polite company to ask if someone thinks monsters are real. So it's become a little like politics or religion, like this hot button issue. And people are so divided and so so strongly confirmed in their beliefs that they can't talk to each other about it. You only talk to your intimates about it, not acquaintances. Right. It's it's very vulnerable. Depending on where you fall on this, you are opening yourself up to ridicule and depending on who you're talking to about it. It really does parallel all different kinds of categories of other, I guess. You have people with different sexual identities and orientations. And in the world, often today, you know, people might be rejected still, depending on the community, the culture, the family, the workplace. And the same thing is happening with the monsters in the sense that people who might be friends with the monster have to decide, but do I want to stand up for your rights or not? Do I want to make an issue out of it? People don't necessarily think they know any monsters, so it doesn't seem so relevant to them. I mean, you could just substitute any kind of other into that word monster, it seems to me, and it would fit a lot of things in our world today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I thought a lot about that. And 
I think something that I was trying to do, and I, I definitely think you're right there, that monsters can be a stand-in for all of these different kinds of otherness. And it works like that for as a metaphor. But I, one of the things I was very interested in, it was trying to use monsters as another form of intersectional marginalization. So like having monsters interact with class and with race and with gender and with orientation and seeing how those different interactions would cause different kinds of marginalization how that would express itself differently. Being a black man who's also a werewolf, what that what that would look like. Being wealthy and being a monster, what that would look like. That is only gently touched on in the book, but it's something that I have plans of exploring in the series. And you have one character who's very into cooperatives, who runs a cooperative bookstore. Mm-hmm. There's this whole cooperative movement that he's involved in. So that was sort of an interesting angle. And I wonder how that might play out or fit in. Right. It's, I mean, <laughs> this is, now I'm, now I'm stalling because I'm, I'm trying to figure out a way to talk about this that isn't, you know, full of spoilers. So, so the co-ops have, are interacting with the, the, the monster community in interesting ways. And it's this idea, you know, it's, it's very much a part of the anarcho-syndicalist way of thinking about labor, where you have workplaces and housing communities that are co-governed and co-owned and what that means for the people that are a part of that community or that workplace. And monsters are finding a way of creating security for themselves through that movement as well. Though most of the people within the movement don't know that. Do you want to talk a little bit about the series? It's called the Convergence Series. So are you still working on the books in the series and how many are planned? Yeah, yeah, I'm still working on it. It's kicking my butt. I'm I'm in book two. I'm working on book two right now. There's going to be three books. When I was envisioning what the story was going to be about, I knew almost immediately that it was going to take three books to write because there's some, some of the metaphysical stuff. I knew I wanted to take time to get there. And I wanted it to be both about these very human stories and these these movement stories, how monsters, as time goes on, carve out a space for themselves within the world and how people adjust to that. But I also knew that I wanted to ask these bigger questions about existence and all of this weird stuff. And I, I knew that needed to be more than one book. At the beginning of our conversation, you hinted at a thematic connection between No Gods, No Monsters and your first book, The Lesson. So I wonder, is there any more you could say about the the connections between the book, assuming there is one or it goes beyond that? Yeah, there's so there is that thematic connection, that kind of like threat from without, threat from within. Structurally, they're very similar. They're both multi-perspective novels looking at a particular event and um, looking at people and how they react to that event differently. But I also, within this book, introduced the idea of different timelines and Cal as a, a traveler between them. And that is an explicit connection between the two books. There's there's um, a few scene details and a few lines that make pretty strong nods to there being a connection. There's a family, there's, there's the pages and the reads. So in the lesson, the, the page family is Patrice's family and the read family is Derek's family. They're both main characters in the lesson. And in this book, there's also 
V characters and Page characters. And so that family is across timelines, so to speak. I assume you're working under a deadline for the second book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why it's kicking your ass, I guess. You're feeling the pressure. Yeah, it's soon. So when I was working on the lesson, I kind of futzed around with it for a while. I didn't, you know, I didn't do it all at once. I took long breaks from working on it. And I really, within those last, that last year was when I really pulled everything together to make it in the book that I wanted it to be. And this book, I was on a deadline and it was a very different experience. And now I'm kind of, ha- I had like the, the whole second book anxiety that writers talk about. And now I'm working on the second book in this trilogy and it feels like I'm getting that same like anxiety again and there is a deadline and it's on my mind. But I right now feel like I'm in a very good place with the book and I'm excited about where it's going. So, you know, it's not all bad, but I feel like deadlines add another level of anxiety that you have to battle with when you when you sit down to write. Right. And I, you know, I deal with that constantly. That sounds really hard. It's ironic. I know a lot of writers, they're so excited to get a book contract, especially a series, but then the deadlines can be so, the publishers really want tight deadlines and Mm -hmm. you have the security of knowing you have a contract, you have a little money coming in, and then yet it it just raises the stakes in so many ways. Right, there's there's that pressure because you, not only do you have an idea and you could be excited about it, sure, but now you've written in ink that this idea is is worth something a and that you're going to do it and that that added weight is is an interesting thing to kind of maneuver it's not all bad you know i definitely feel like there's pros and cons on either side of it so like if you are you know struggling to pitch your book to publishers that is very hard and, and frustrating in in a lot of ways i feel like i'm lucky but de- definitely definitely i I um, sometimes wake up like, oh, God. <laughs> well, and also the, the first book's done. So if you're writing something in the second book and you think, oh, wait, I'll have them do this. Oh, wait, no, that contradicts something in the first book. So mm-hmm. you don't have that freedom to do it. Although with alternate timelines, you could always republish No Gods, No Monsters and say that edition came from a different timeline with a different, <laughs> a different character or something in it. Right. Right. I actually really like the puzzle part of it, like um, figuring out what what is the logical way you can move the story that doesn't offend what you've already done. That actually is really fun. It's it's not always fun when I'm trying to figure out what to solve is. But once I get to solve, I'm really excited. I think that that is part of the reason why I write books with a lot of stuff happening in them. It's really fun trying to solve those puzzles. I, I do treat it like a puzzle. Are you someone who has to then write a lot of drafts, I assume, just because there's so many moving pieces, so you have to kind of experiment with moving things around? Yes, I, I tend to write a lot of drafts, and I tend to write out of order. I, I jump around. So like if, if I make a connection, they don't always come in chronological order. I'll make a decision, and then I'll back write it for it to make sense. I'll move some things around. I know some people really hate the revision process, but I love that process. It's it's once I have everything and I know it's all there, and even if it's not working completely, it's fun for me to try to find the little fixes that's going to make everything work. 
Wonderful. And so you're teaching fiction, is that right? That's right. You teach an MFA program? Yeah. So your students must be very lucky to have someone with so much firsthand knowledge of, <laughs> of the business and writing and writing complex stories. Sure. I mean, so my first book came out in 2019. And that doesn't feel very long ago. And I I keep waiting for the moment where I feel like I'm a grown-up writer and I still feel like a baby writer. And so sometimes, you know, the imposter syndrome is real. I'm like standing in front of students and, or, you know, actually my first year was all on Zoom because of the pandemic. So standing in front of my laptop or sitting in front of my laptop talking to students and I feel like I don't know what I'm talking about, to be honest. And then I'll be workshopping someone's story and then some bit of insight will come to me and then I'll I'll think, oh yeah, I do have something I can offer them. But it doesn't feel most of the time like I'm in a particularly unique position to give advice. I know I'm not supposed to say that, but it's it's the truth. And really what it comes down to, what I tell myself is I have a take on the work that I'm reading and I have ideas that I would like to offer. And I do treat it like a conversation and that relieves some of the pressure from me because I've done workshops before, but I know I'm facilitating the workshop. And so I'll steer conversation, but it's really a conversation. Well, that's such a nice, humble way of approaching it. That sounds great. I, I don't like workshops where the, the leader is the dictator, too, and everyone worships them. So it sounds mm-hmm. much more, it sounds like a cooperative in, to some extent, a shared, somewhat shared leadership, although I understand that you are in charge and you are, you are steering the ship. Right. I'm just tying it back to the cooperative of No Gods, No Monsters. I do think of it that way. I do, I do try to make it feel like it's a conversation between equals as much as I can. And when I was in workshops before, I would have writers, professors I really admire, give certain types of recommendations, very prescriptivist, like, this is what you should do. This is how fiction works. If you do this, everything's going to be fine. Or if you do this, then it's you're going to have good, good fiction. And my impulse was always... <laughs> to to do the thing anyway, <laughs> to see if I could pull it off, the thing that I was being told not to do. And so I, I kind of, I kind of like that in students as well. I think that the students should respond to me as a suggestion and not as a, as a hard rule. Well, like I said, your students sound very lucky. Sounds great. Appreciate that. Well, thank you so much for coming back on the show. This has really been, it's really been a lot of fun, a lot of fun reading No Gods, No Monsters, and a lot of fun talking again. Yes, thank you. Thank you. I had a great time talking. I have been talking to Cadwell Turnbull, author of No Gods, No Monsters from Blackstone Publishing. Thank you so, so much for listening. Please subscribe if you don't already, and feel free to support the show by leaving a review, giving it five stars. Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com composed our theme music. I am Rob Wolf, and I edit the show. Marshall Poe is editor and founder of the New Books Network, and Leanne Wilson is the co-editor. I hope you have a happy fall. Hope you stay safe and healthy, and please keep buying and reading books, and I will be back with a new episode soon. <laughs>